Okay today? Alright, good morning. Uh, hey, I'm back from vacation. I want to say thank you for letting my family have such an incredible vacation. That was really, really great of so many people. So I just want to thank um, uh, Josh Scott, who was here last Sunday, and Cody and Heather Lynn, who both led worship. And I want to give a special thanks to Ben, even though he can't hear it right now, because Jen moved to Indianapolis, and I was like, peace, I'm going on vacation. And Ben was like, alright. <laughs> and he was the one that had to basically put together everything. So I want to thank Ben. And then I want to thank all of you. Um, here's why I want to thank all of you. I was out of the country, and I had about an hour a day where I had internet access. And so about an hour a day, I would catch um, really the, the terrible things going on in Charlottesville a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and so I see you know, some of the hate that is, is being spewed, and I see like, you know, legitimate acts of terrorism there. And when I looked uh, at you know, social media and I saw all of you, I was incredibly encouraged by how you all engaged and how you all said that the gospel message is not this and how you all were willing to be responsible and articulate in the way that you talked about that and the way that you said we denounce this but at the same time we want you to recognize that there's a gospel message bigger than all this. It made me really proud of our church. Like I'm really proud of everybody. Um, I came back feeling like this is the church that I want to go to. Um, I guess I have to go because I'm a pastor. But regardless, I felt like this is the place I want to be. So I'm thankful that I get to hold attention when there are difficult, racist, alt-right things happening. I'm grateful that I have a church that, that stands behind all of us and stands behind each other and says, we will not allow this to happen. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And so I came home, right? And I'm like, oh my gosh, what a crazy couple weeks. Thank God I wasn't here for it. And I'm like, what am I speaking on again? And I'm like, oh, I'm speaking on David and Bathsheba. Awesome. Um, because now it means that we're going to have to live in the tension a little longer. We're going to have to talk about more uncomfortable parts of the scripture. Okay, that's what we're going to do. Last week, if you were here, uh, Josh Scott talked about David. David is in the lineage of Jesus. How many people were here to hear that? A few of you? Okay. And it's this great story, right? Because David is promised to be king, but he's not king yet. Saul is chasing David all around. He's trying to kill him. And David's hiding in a cave, and Saul goes into this cave to go to the bathroom. And David has the chance to kill him, but he doesn't. He cuts off a piece of his cloak. And he says, look, I have the chance to kill you, but I didn't do it. And it's this beautiful picture, right? It's this picture of David withholding power, right? Because he has a promise from God. And it's this picture for the people of Israel. They're like, our God withholds power, even in the worst, of, in, in the worst circumstances. Our God does not want to use his power to hurt us. Our God uses God's power, or withholds God's power to bring about love grace and reconciliation. So it's this beautiful picture, this beautiful story. Today, I get to talk about the opposite. I get to talk about what happens when you abuse power. I get to talk about what happens uh, when selfishness takes over selflessness. I have to get to talk about what happens uh, in some of the darker parts of scripture. How many people have heard this David and Bathsheba story before? How many people? A lot of people. Okay, good. I'm going to tell it in a nutshell. And I want you to follow along with me. It's going to be uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app on your phone, pull it out. Follow along with me. Uh, and we have David. And David uh, is at his palace. And he hasn't gone off to war to fight with the other men. He's at his palace. He sees this beautiful woman bathing across the way. And he says to his guards, guards, go find out who that beautiful woman is. And so... Uh, he finds out that she is Bathsheba, and that she is married to Uriah the Hittite, who is one of David's generals, okay, one of the generals of David's army. And so he goes, you know what, I like her, bring her to me, and they sleep together. And they sleep together, and, uh, and then uh, Bathsheba says, hey, I'm pregnant. And 
David's like, well, this is a mess. This is terrible. So what does he do? He gets Uriah, her husband, back from the battlefield. He says to Uriah, hey, you're on leave for a couple days. Why don't you go home and sleep with your wife, right? So you can try to cover this up, right? And he goes, no, I, I won't do that. I, I'm in this battle, and because I'm in this battle, I won't leave my soldiers. So he sleeps with the soldiers outside of the palace. The second night, David does the same thing. This time, David gets him really drunk. David's like, go sleep with your wife. And even though he's really drunk, he's like, I'm not doing it. I'm sleeping here with my soldiers outside the palace. And so David's like, okay, I have no other choice but to kill Uriah. It's the only choice I have. So he says to another soldier, he says, put Uriah on the front lines. And when the battle gets fierce, I want you all to back away from him so that he's killed. And that's exactly what happens. He's killed. He's killed. Uh, Bathsheba mourns for 30 days, and then she is married to David. Now, there's more to the story than that, but that is the story in a nutshell. Um, I've heard this story a bunch. I've preached on this story. Uh, and I must say that when I've preached on this story, and when I've talked about this story, this story has given me great hope. That's given me a lot of hope because I don't think I'm the only one in the room when I say this. Uh, there's some parts of my life that I, <laughs> I don't care to admit that I did, the things that I did. Anybody else? No, just me. A few of us, okay. Right? Yeah, there's some things in my life that I'm like, you know, I, I didn't want to do this. Or it was some lost years, so to speak. And I look at David and I go, well, David was an adulterer and a murderer. I'm not that. He was a man after God's own heart. So maybe I could be a man after God's own heart, too. And that's sort of how I saw this scripture. In fact, that's how I preached on this scripture. Um, but I always say scripture is living and breathing, right? I say it's this thing that's constantly moving and the spirit works in it. In fact, I've gone as far as saying that if you read the scripture the same way today that you did 10 years ago, uh, we might not be reading it with the spirit in mind, right? Scripture should change. We should see it differently as we get closer to the heart of God. And so as I read David and Bathsheba this time, I must say that I, I have to repent. And I don't have to repent of, of finding hope in the story. I think that was there for a reason for a time. But I think I have to repent of some of my blind spots in the story. And so in order for me to talk about some of the blind spots that I have in the story, I need to tell the story again. Can you listen to it again? Some of you are like, no. yeah, can we do it? I have to tell it again. I'm going to tell it again. And, and here is what I see this time around in reading the story that I think I've missed in years past, okay? And so this is how the story goes again, 2 Samuel chapter 11. What we have is a man, David, who is overcome by his own success, okay? He has been anointed king. He gets everything he wants. He is fully successful. Every move he makes works. He is appointed by God in this position. And so he starts to think that everything he does is appointed by God. And when you have everything, what generally happens when you have everything? Anybody? Generally want more. Generally want more. We went to Italy. Me and the kids were eating gelato in this 1,500-year-old um, city. And, like, we're in a 1,500-year-old city eating gelato. And it was, like, the best gelato ever. And I'm like, this is amazing. My kids are, like, eating it. And they look up, and they're finished. And they're like, Dak, we have candy now? And I was like, you're in... A in a 1,500-year-old city in gelato, you will not have candy. Like, enjoy what you have. Like, I was, like, sort of angry about it um, because it starts down because this is what we do. We have, we have a lot. We always want more. David wants more. We have everything we want more. And so David's supposed to go off to battle. In fact, in those times, during that age, um, battle, war, and God were synonymous with one another. If you were skipping out on war, you were skipping out on God. So we see already David is disobedient. He's making himself his own God. 
he's deciding that he wants more, and he sees this beautiful woman, and he sees this woman, and he uh, is like, I want this woman, right? That's what he does. So he sends his guards over to find out who this woman is, and she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba, and the guards bring her back to his place. Now, if you are a woman at this time, you are unfortunately a second-class citizen. You don't have many rights. And when the king's guards come to you and say, you must come with me, as a woman, you don't get the opportunity to say, I don't think I'm going to come today. You don't get that opportunity. So we can surmise, or we can say that in some ways, she was basically forcibly taken by the guards of David. She's forcibly taken by the guards of David, brought to David's palace where David sees her. And once again, if you are a woman of second-class stature during this time, you don't have the voice to speak up against the king of Israel. And so if the king of Israel says he wants you or wants something, you don't get the option to say, no, I'm already married to somebody else. You don't get that option. And so David abuses his power. David is an oppressor against this woman. David hurts this woman. And I think it's fair to say David rapes Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. She gets two words in the whole story. I'm pregnant. Of course she only gets two words in the whole story because she's a woman in this, in this second class, uh, you, you know, second class in this kind of culture. And, and who would believe her if she tried to say anything else? Who would believe her if she said she was forcibly removed from her home? Who would believe her if she said that the king raped her? Who would believe her? She's number eight now as David has, has seven other wives. And so this is just the eighth wife. This is just David wanting more as we tend to want more. So of course, don't hear from Bathsheba. And then Uriah the Hittite comes. And Uriah the Hittite comes and we get the juxtaposition between what life looks like when we're always wanting more, when there's a selfishness that replaces our selflessness. We see selfless Uriah on one side going, there's no way I can indulge in any of what I want right now when I'm fighting for people, when I'm fighting for my king, when I'm fighting for my country. He's this juxtaposition to David who goes, I want what I want right now regardless of how I get it. And he kills Uriah. Nathan comes along. Nathan is a prophet. And Nathan comes along and he comes to the, the to where uh, David is and he says, David, I got a story to tell you. And you can read along in 2 Samuel chapter 12 if you like. And he says, I got a story I want to tell you. He goes, there was this family. This family loved their sheep. They had this wonderful sheep. They loved it. It's kind of crazy. They would actually let their sheep um, eat with them and drink with them and they would let their sheep sleep with them sometimes. That's how much they loved the sheep. The sheep was like a family member. And one day this family was traveling with their beloved sheep, the sheep that they loved. And they were traveling together and uh, they went to a rich man's house. And the rich man didn't have one sheep, he had hundreds of sheep, more sheep than he knew what to do with. And so um, what happened was the rich man saw their sheep, the sheep that they loved, and what did the rich man do? The rich man killed that sheep. He slaughtered it and ate it. Here's David's response. David says this, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord of God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You 
took his life to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised him and took the life of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And I never recognized this, but I see Nathan understanding and condemning rape, abuse, hurt. Here is a lamb that is loved. Here is a lamb that is cherished. Here is a selfless action towards a lamb, a sheep. And what do we have on the other hand? Consuming. Destroying. Taking away that lamb. So taking away humanity from Bathsheba by making her a victim. That's what Nathan is condemning. And the baby that they've conceived dies. And that's the first of many consequences of David. David's life is actually never the same from this point again, as it sometimes is for those of us who, who think that we don't have enough, that are always trying to move up and gather more power or gather more because we're never quite satisfied, and often there are consequences that come as relationships end, struggles begin. But I don't think that's necessarily the crux of the story. This story is not some 3,000-year-old, 4,000-year-old story. The story is a story that is happening every single day. This story is a story that happens across socioeconomic lines, it happens across ethnic lines, it happens across city lines. This story is a story that happens in our schools, and I'm sad to say this story is a story that sometimes happens in our churches. We have, some of us, been abused. We've been hurt. We've been violated. Maybe it's sexual, like it was in this story. Maybe it's physically we've been abused. Maybe we've been abused verbally. I went through an experience where I felt like I was manipulated for years. And that pain is there, and that's real. We feel that kind of abuse. This is a story of abuse. And if any of us in this room have gone through that in any way or in any respect, I want to say right now that I am sorry. I'm sorry that that's happened. Sorry that's happened to us. I'm sorry that's happened in our churches. I'm sorry that's happened to you. And I want to redeem this story. How do we redeem a story that's very difficult? How do we redeem a story of rape, of murder? How do we redeem a story where Bathsheba still has to lie with her rapist and have more children with her rapist for years on end? How do we redeem that kind of story? What do we do? Well, first of all, I think we redeem the story by letting each other know and letting people know outside that it matters. It matters to our church that we call out the story for what it is. It matters to our church. Uh, on Twitter, there's this hashtag. It says, empty the pews. Have you guys heard about this hashtag? Some of us? No. It's sort of a sad hashtag. It's people have stories why people have left church. And the thing that just has been so discouraging and sad and heartbreaking for me is I look at all these women who, hundreds of women on Twitter who have said, I left the church because I was abused there and they either told me I was wrong or they ignored me or they didn't fire the person that was abusing me. And that's why I left the church. And that is disgusting. If we're going to redeem this story, the church is a safe place. The church is a place where we can mourn, where we can hurt, where we can say this has happened and where we can get comfort and prayer and solace and resources to heal. That's what the church is and should be. If we redeem this story, our church, Forefront, is that church. We are a place for people to come safe midst of being. I think we redeem this story by being vulnerable. And being vulnerable is a scary, scary thing because when we're vulnerable, sometimes people don't believe. 
confessing up here all day. Uh, when I was a teenager, someone came to me and they said to me, Jonathan, I've been abused this way. And I was a dumb kid. And I didn't know what to say. And the first thing that came out of my mouth was, well, are you sure? And I cringe. It's been 20-something years later and I cringe. We're not that church. <laughs> and yes, I got to talk to that person. And yes, I helped that person through. And, and our relationship is still one that is, is alive today but I cringe at those first words. If we're going to be vulnerable with one another, that means that we believe one another. When someone says, I've been hurt, I've been abused, this has happened to me, we don't go, that's oh, not my experience. We go, I believe you. I'm with you. How can I help you? And by asking those questions, we're able to redeem the story of the confession. It's easy for us to discount something that's out of our worldview out of our experience. It's easier. It's easy for us to go, I don't know. Nah, that, that's not me. Are you sure? Fight that urge. Say, I'm with you. How can I help I think we redeem this story by recognizing that we all have the potential to be David. Every one of us in this room has the potential to be David. We have the potential to use our power to hurt other people. We have a potential to use our power to oppress. This is what... Uh, the Reverend Scott Landis says, and I, I like it. He says, if this is who we are, we're not here to be made to feel guilty. But what I want you to do is I want you to listen to what God wants and needs to reveal in you as we seek to be faithful in our following as people of integrity, justice, passion, and peace. I'm asking you to recognize that we're connected and we have a lot of power to hurt, but we also have a ton of power to restore. Maybe there are times we do want to use our power to oppress, to hurt. I ask us to take a step back. I ask us to listen to what God is calling us to do. I'm asking us to remember that the person who has hurt the victim, they don't become whole until we become whole. If we're using our power to hurt others, we're not becoming whole. There's this quote by Martin Luther King, and it's a little confusing, but I love it because I think it talks about our interconnectivity. It says this. In a real sense, all of life is interrelated. All men are caught in the inescapable work of mutual reality tied to the single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. That's what it is. We're connected with this. But lastly, I think we redeem this story by recognizing that our abuse, however we've been abused, whether it be verbal, physical, sexual, whatever it might be, it does not define us. Our abuse does not define us. Our abuse does not define us. And sometimes it feels like it does. Sometimes it feels like our identity is wrapped up in us being a victim. And I think it's okay to feel that way. I think we can mourn through that and be angry about that and, and call it what it is, but it does not define us and it did not define Bathsheba either. She had another son, his son Solomon. She actually does get some words. She actually does talk again in Scripture. It's in 2 Kings. This is what happens. It's a, it's a small, kind of minor um, part of a story. But what happens, Bathsheba goes to talk to her son, King Solomon, for one of his men, Adonijah. And this is what 2 Kings says. It says, The king rose to meet her. He bowed to her and sat down on his throne and he ordered a throne to be set in place for his mother 
and she sat on a throne to his right. She is restored. She's not the victim. She's the one that is bowed to. She's not defined by her abuse. She's the one who sits on the throne. She's not the one who is broken. She's the one who is made whole as she sits at the right hand of the king. That is the story of Bathsheba. And that is our story. We are made to flourish. We are made to be bowed to. We are made to sit at the right hand of our God. That is our story. Then we get this beautiful picture in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. The genealogy of Jesus. David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. She's not defined by David. She's not defined by her rapist. She's defined by the person she was before. She is made whole and she is made fully a part of the story of Jesus. Fully a part of that story. She's made to, to, to change the course of history. She is not defined by her abuse. She's defined by who she became. She became the mother to the man who changed it all for us. That's what we get. We're not defined by our abuse. We become part of the story. We're called to continue this reconciliation. We're called to continue this peace. We're called to continue to bring the kingdom of God here. We're a part of this genealogy. We get that. We are made full. And there's nothing that can take that away from us. And when we have that shame and we have that mourning and we have that pain, that, that, that's true and it's real and it's valuable and I understand it. But eventually we get to drop that at the feet of Jesus. We get to bring that to the feet of Jesus who says, I'll take that with me to the cross. And on the cross, you are made new. Because of the cross, you are made whole. Because of the cross, you're a part of this story. Because of the cross, you are not defined by your abuse. Because of the cross, you are redeemed. Because of the cross, you sit at my right hand. I bow to you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, dark stories in Scripture are hard, but they can be redeemed, and we're thankful that you put the dark ones in our, in our, in our lives so that we can fight through and battle through, so that we can see the good news that happens slowly but surely through a lot of pain, through a lot of heartache, but ultimately ending with you, God, with your grace, with your love, with your infinite, unimaginable mercy. So we thank you for that, God. God, in the midst of our pain, we pray that you would heal us, continue to heal us, continue to make us whole, continue to restore us. And when we believe the lie that we're defined by our pain, God, simply speak to us and let us know it's not true. 